lovely to see you all this morning. Thank you. I thought we'd um, have a little break from our, I've been talking about Sonship a lot, I thought we'd have a little break and just delve into some of the things Derek shared last week and um, I thought we'd talk about disappointment and doubt and um, disappointment is sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. Anybody ever been disappointed? Okay, well, might be worth listening then. Disappointment, of course, is part of our human condition. It is part of what it means to be human. We all have hopes, desires, expectations, and we all at some point in time find those hopes and expectations to become unfulfilled, which is what we call disappointment. Uh, we hoped this would happen and it didn't. We hoped this would not happen and it did. We prayed this would take place and it didn't. We prayed this would happen and it did. You can all, I am sure, tell many stories of the things you have wished for, hoped for, dreamed for, prayed for, believed for, and yet you have not quite seen them come to pass. Or rather, we should say, you've not seen them come to pass how you wanted them come to come to pass, when you wanted them to come to pass, in the way you wanted them to come to pass. Uh, that may be more appropriate to say, but still we feel that sense of disappointment, don't we? And it sits heavy on us, all of us, to one degree or another, another pain of disappointment. But there is actually a deeper pain. Uh, there is a deeper pain, a pain of continued and seemingly consistent disappointment. Uh, and the Bible has a term for that. The Bible calls it heart sickness. Unrelenting disappointment leaves you heart sick. And so there's a pain beyond disappointment, which is once you've been disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and disappointed, it actually, it turns your heart sick. It's like a deeper thing than disappointment. It, it becomes what the Bible says is heart sickness. And in many ways, that statement, unrelenting disappointment leaves your heart sick, is really just a truism. It's just a statement of fact. Eventually, when you get disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and disappointed, you do become sick in your heart. And that often manifests itself in your body as well. Oftentimes, it actually comes out in your physical body. So, although your heart, and I, by heart sick, I, I suppose the Bible there means the centre of your core. It doesn't necessarily mean the physical heart, but actually it can at times affect your physical heart and all sorts of parts of your body. And so some of us have experienced disappointment, some of us have experienced or are experiencing in what we might call heart sickness. So many disappointments along the way that our hearts literally become sick with disappointment. And if you've not experienced that, then you can be very thankful and grateful. If you have, then keep listening. What happens, though, is that we get into this spiral. Disappointment turns into doubt. And our ability to believe for anything good starts to dwindle. So because we've been disappointed so many times, our ability to actually believe for anything good, to believe for a way forward, to believe for a positive outcome dwindles and dwindles till it's simply too difficult to even think a resolution is possible. People get to that place. It becomes too painful to think about a positive outcome because you've been disappointed so many times that you just feel like all you were doing is setting yourself up for more pain, and who in their right mind would want to do that? At the same time, though, if you have been in church for a while, you may have been taught that you were meant to be full of faith. 
So then you get a double whammy because you know you're meant to be full of faith, but you don't feel full of faith. So then you feel guilty for not being full of faith, which just makes the whole thing even worse. I know this feeling. I know what it is to feel disappointment after disappointment. I know what it is to pray and pray and believe again and believe again and not see any discernible breakthrough or difference. I know what it is to pray and feel like you should pray, but also feel like you have no faith at all to pray with. I know what it is to not offer to pray because you have no faith left in you to pray with. And you know that to offer to pray would just be being a fake. And I hate being a fake, so instead of being a fake and trying to drum up some faith on the inside of me when in truth at that moment I have none, then I just don't offer. Rightly or wrongly, maybe I'm a heathen, who knows, but maybe I'm just human. And maybe I'm just real about life and real about the reality of where we find ourselves at times. In fact, I believe that is what it is to be human. To walk with Jesus is to wrestle with him and to be in those times and places where you go, I'm not even sure you were listening and if you are, I'm not sure you do much about it. That is just called life. And I suppose one of the things I want to share with you today is that's okay. Because some of you have lived in communities where you've been told that's not okay and you've just got to believe because God says it and therefore you've got to have faith. The problem is sometimes you don't. And in a community that tells you you're not allowed to do that, you're in a bit of a difficult situation. Because you can't even admit to the reality of how you feel, and then that means you shut it down, which puts you in an even worse place, because now you're in denial, trying to be something you're not, whilst living a life that's not true. I want to speak into that heart sickness and the doubt that comes with it. Whenever we think about doubt, we tend to think that doubt is the opposite of faith and that doubt is bad and terrible and we just try and shout it out and blast it away. No, I can't doubt. I can't doubt that he loves me. I can't doubt that he's good for me. I can't doubt this. I can't doubt that. But actually, the truth is that belief and doubt are not enemies. On the contrary, they are good friends who live together. Belief and doubt are good friends that live together. They are not enemies. And as I say, some of us may have been taught that doubt is bad but I strongly and profoundly disagree. I would agree with Frederick Buechner, who said, if you don't have doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. <laughs> doubts are the ants in your pants of faith. They keep it alive and moving. Or the poet Robert Browning, who said, I show you doubt to prove that faith exists. They're not even, I don't think, either side of the same coin. They're just one side of one coin. Like, they exist together. It's not possible to believe without also doubting. They are one and the same thing together, if that makes sense. The opposite of belief is not doubt. The opposite of belief is unbelief, which is a deliberate choice to not believe. Doubt is not a deliberate choice to not believe. It's a wrestle to believe. And you find that all through the Scripture. Starting with Jacob, who literally wrestled with God to try and work out, who am I? What's my name? Who am I meant to be? And then you read the Psalms and you see him wrestling. You read Job. There's this wrestling that goes on. Struggling with doubt is not about losing your faith. It's a sure sign you've got some. 
struggling with doubt is not about losing your faith, it's a sure sign you've got some. Because it means you're asking some questions. Well, good. Faith is not all about some, some mental assent to some creed or some theology. It's about how do I live life? What does it mean to live life? That's what faith is. It's not about I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe in blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, that's wonderful. But that's not the faith of the, of the, of the Bible. The faith of the Bible is what does it mean to live? What does it mean to live in him and be found in him? What does it mean for that to be a reality? Everyone doubts. You doubt, I doubt, we all doubt. So let's stop pretending none of us don't, or if you don't, please tell me the answer to the issue. Because the truth is, we don't understand everything. And when we don't understand everything, we start to doubt what's going on. Because we, have, we all have a way we see the world, and a way the, we all have a way we'd like the world to be. That we have a way we'd like our lives to be. We'd like it to be this way or that way or the other way. We'd like this person to do this. We'd like our bank account to say this. We'd like all these things to go on. And when it doesn't happen like we want it to happen, we start to ask questions. That's called being human and being real. And it's also called being healthy. I have doubted my own abilities. I have doubted God's unending love for me. I have doubted his passion for me. I have doubted whether he's listening to me and whether talking to him makes any difference anyway. I have doubted all these things. That don't mean I've lost my faith. That means I've wrestled with it. And that's a healthy place to be. You may have taught yourself over the years to shut those doubts down and pretend they don't exist, but that means you are living in denial, which is not a healthy place to be. You may have done that because the community you were a part of, uh, you didn't feel able to express those doubts because there are some communities who feel that doubting's not helpful or helpful. Well, this ain't one of them. But the first thing I want to show you is how Jesus responds to somebody who initially trusts him and then doubts him. Because if you know Jesus, you've trusted him, and then you may have well asked some questions about him, which is understandable. Well, there was a man that Jesus met who had done exactly the same, and the way Jesus treats him is fascinating. We find it in Matthew and chapter 11. When John, this is John the Baptist, if you know a little bit about the New Testament, heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, so that's Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame, excuse me, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? Because John originally was out in the wilderness on the River Jordan. He, he kind of was the forerunner to, to Jesus. A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now this is interesting because, if you go back before this, John says some fascinating things about Jesus. So in John chapter 1 he says, Look, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. 
And then in verse 34 of John 1, he says, I have seen and testified this is the Son of God. So John is like super clear who Jesus is. This is the Lamb of God. He's, he's sent to declare who he is. But then you get to Matthew 11, and he says this. John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? He's not quite believing he's the Son of God anymore, is he? He's in a different place now. Now he finds himself in prison and sends his disciples to go, well, um, did I get it right? Because it's not really looking like I thought it might look. I thought it would be this wonderful thing, and now I'm in prison, and you're doing all this stuff, but if you are the Son of God, I kind of thought it'd look like this. And if you really were the Lamb of God, I kind of thought it'd look like this, and it's not looking like that. So, Jesus, what the chuff's going on? He's pretty much what he's saying. What's fascinating is Jesus' response to the doubt of John. This is also his cousin. So this is, these are close. They've spent time together. It's not like the strangers. But the answer's really instructive. He doesn't rebuke him or tell him down. He just gives John the evidence he needs in order for him to see again. Go back, he says, and tell John what you've seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed. In other words, go back and tell John that in my name the hurting people of the world have been totally transformed. Go back and tell him that. But then notice what happens next. Jesus shares with the crowd his high praise for John the Baptist. John's resp Jesus' response to John's doubt is to say how wonderful John is before John has changed his mind. Because it says, as John's disciples were leaving, so they've not got back to John yet, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. He's more than a prophet. He's the forerunner of who was foretold. No one born of woman has been greater than John the Baptist, says Jesus. But where is John the Baptist? He's in prison. And where he is in his thoughts, he's not changed his thoughts a bit. He's still going, are you actually the Lamb of God? Are you actually the one who's meant to do all this stuff? He's not received the... He's not going, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I repent of my doubt. And I believe... He's not done any of that. And Jesus goes, this is my man. He's wonderful and I believe in him. Before he's done anything about his doubts. It's beautiful. It's as if Jesus is saying, John may doubt me, but I don't doubt him. He's still on my team. He may not believe in me right now. He may not be clear about who I am. He may not even be certain or sure about who I am. But I believe in him. He affirms his faith in John, while John is still in his doubts. He knew that underneath those doubts, there was something there. And so Jesus would say the same to you. No matter where you are at, no matter what you think about him, no matter where you're at and your doubts about him, even whether you believe he's there or not, and you're questioning the whole thing, Jesus goes, but I believe in you. And I think you're wonderful and fantastic. And I have not lost my faith in you. You might have lost your faith in me, or you might be losing it, and you might be doubting all sorts of things, but I still believe in you for you to be you, and you to be wonderful and fabulous, and that will never change. Because lots of people think that when they start to doubt, God gets very angry and upset. 
When they start to doubt Jesus or they don't start to do the things they know they should be doing or think they should be doing, they start to think God gets upset. But it seems to me that Jesus is consistent in what he thinks, no matter where we are at in our doubts. That his heart, his expression, his words, his thoughts are exactly the same, no matter where we are at in our doubts. So we've said, a healthy community is one where we can express doubt, disappointment, and heart sickness. And this is, the, this is the key. A healthy community is one where we can express doubt, disappointment, and heart sickness and be met with compassion. Heart sickness does not need Bible verses. It needs compassion. It does not need glib answers to just believe and gee up your faith. It needs compassion. It needs someday to go, I'm so sorry. That must be really tough. You've done so well at sticky now you have. A sick heart needs to be heard. A sick heart needs to be listened to. A sick heart needs to be given permission to share its sickness without being judged. The first prescription for heart sickness is compassion which of course is why you're careful who you share your heart sickness with. Because if somebody with heart sickness shares it with somebody who's not yet learned to be compassionate, but just chucks out some Bible verse at you, your heart will just get sicker. And you will push it even further down. Jesus, it seems, when he heard of John's doubts, met him with incredible compassion. He never once tells him off. He never once rebukes him. He never once has a go at him. He never once kind of wags his finger at him. He just goes, oh, John. John's a wonderful man. But after compassion, it needs something more. It needs strengthening. A sick heart after compassion needs the strength and insight and hope to dare to believe again. And I use that word there on purpose. I'm always impressed, always impressed, that those who choose to believe again when they have hit the floor, I think it's the most incredible thing to see and watch when somebody stands up and dares to believe again. It's the most incredible thing. I'm going to talk about some things we can do in the midst of our doubts in a moment. But I want, to, I want to help us because we must also check what we are hoping and longing for. Because sometimes, sometimes we set ourselves up for heart sickness. Sometimes. Not all the time. Hear me. Sometimes. Some of the way to avoid some of our heart sickness is to learn some things about hopes and expectations and desires and goals. Because sometimes we set expectations and desires and goals that are out of our control, and then we get heartsick about them. But setting yourself up with something that is not in your control is not wise, and it's not healthy for you or them. 
Many of us have expectations and desires that involve others. We expect or hope this person will do this or not do this, act in this way or not act in this way. Many of us have hopes, dreams and expectations that are tied up in other people's choices and actions. And because of that, if we are not careful, we end up trying to manipulate and control those people because we realise they are necessary for us to achieve our goals. And instead of amending our expectations and hopes, we try and control and manipulate others to make our expectations and hopes come to pass, often with disastrous results for everybody involved. It's not hard to understand why people try and control others. If you believe that your sense of worth and value and your hopes and your dreams is dependent on them, and you work really hard at trying to get them to do or be whatever you want them to be or do, then it's understandable. But we must face up to the illusion of control. We must face up to the illusion of control. Many of us have got people in our lives and are frustrated because we've been trying to get them to do something or not do something and they just don't do it as if you had control in the first place. As if you had control. We must stare with our own sense of powerlessness and our own brokenness and the understanding that the only thing you have control over is you. You've got to start in that place. It's the only thing you have control over, you. Your actions, your responses, your words, how you use the money you have access to, how you use your time, how you use your possessions. You have complete and utter control over that to the extent that your mind is able to exhibit control. I realise that for some people, um, in certain scenarios, they don't have much control because of the state of their mind, whether it's... Uh, not developed properly or through trauma or other things, but, but most of us have control over ourselves and what we can do. The problem is that anything we desire that depends on other people's responses can set us up for heart sickness. Because, of course, you cannot control that person. You can try, but trust me, it won't turn out well for either of you. The struggle with avoiding heart sickness, is that we have to learn to see that the grip we thought we had on changing somebody else isn't healthy for us or them. But the dilemma we find ourselves in is that we can't bear the thought of them not changing. So we live in this tension all the time. We want this person to be this or be that or do that or not do that or change or whatever, and often not out of selfish reasons. Often because we want this person to experience the life that we know is possible and they just need to make some, just need to, as if it were that simple, make some different choices and then it'll all be wonderful as to how we see it. And of course, it may well be that true, but actually, but we know that it's painful for them and it's painful for us and, and it, often it's not even about us, it's all about them. But we get heartsick because they don't seem to make the choices that would be helpful for them. Perhaps we need to think of these people in a different way. Perhaps we need to think, I love this person. I would do anything for them. But at the same time, I understand they are free to do whatever they want. I accept 
that I live in the tension of that truth. I love this person. I'd do anything for them. But at the same time, I understand they are free to do whatever they want to do. And I accept that I live in the tension of that. And that is a place of tension, believe you me. It is a great... And some of you know that tension more than others. I know. But we seem to fight to get out of that tension a lot of the time. We want to escape that tension. And understandably so. But actually... Whichever way you go to escape it is not healthy or helpful, sadly. But maybe there is a different way to look at things that can help us. Because, of course, the next question is, well, how can we have goals and desires and expectations and hopes? Well, in them... Um, in Freedom in Christ, Neil Anderson speaks of the difference between a goal and a desire. And you've got to be clear about what are your goals and what are your desires. Goals are any specific orientation that reflects God's purpose for your life and is not dependent on people or circumstances beyond our ability or control. That is a healthy goal. Of course. I'm not saying it's all about you. And I'm not saying that you don't involve anybody else. But any goal that you are basing anything of your worth or identity on or, or aiming towards that is based on other people is potentially doomed to failure by other people. Whereas a desire is any result that depends on the cooperation of other people. The success of events or circumstances you have no right or ability to control. Let me give you some examples. I play a number of roles in my life. I am a husband, a father, a friend, a pastor, a teacher. Let me show you this subtle distinction. As a husband, a goal of a wonderful marriage is not a healthy goal, because that depends on fear. I can have a desire to have a wonderful marriage, but to have a wonderful marriage takes two people who are willing to work incredibly hard all the time towards one another. I cannot have a godly goal that says I am going to have a wonderful marriage. I can have a godly goal that says I'm going to be a wonderful husband. Because that depends on me. I can have a wonderful goal that says, no, I'm going to be the best husband I can ever be. And I can desire and hope that that would be returned. And it is, because I'm very blessed. But, when I put all my hopes and expectations on I'm going to have a wonderful marriage, I'm setting myself up for potential heart sickness, because that's not dependent on me. I can be the best husband in the world, but if Faye decides she can be the worst wife in the world, and I can't do anything about it. I can if I try and control her, but that's not going to go well. It's not up to me whether my marriage is wonderful. It's up to me whether I'm a wonderful husband or not. It's not up to me whether I've got a wonderful marriage or not. As a father, of course I want all my children growing up to run with Jesus, but that's not up to me. That's up to them. They have to decide to run with Jesus. They have to decide what extent they want Jesus in their lives. I can't decide for them. And I certainly can't base any sense of value on what they choose. What I can do is be the best example I can be of Father God to them, the best example of Jesus to them, which will contribute to whether they choose him. But whether they actually choose him and what actions they choose further down the line, well, that's their choice. 
What they choose doesn't determine whether I'm a good father or not. How I act determines whether I'm a good father or not. Whether I am a good dad is not dependent on my children's choices. It's dependent on what I did with them. And of course, we automatically think that if I make all the right choices as a dad, then my kids will, oh, well, I don't well that. We'd like it to. We'd love it to. But it doesn't always work like that, does it? And so I can't base, am I a good dad or not? Oh, well, I'll decide. What have my kids chose? No. What did I do? What did I do? And if I didn't do it, what am I going to do now about it? Which doesn't really matter whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, or 70. You can always do something different in the roles that you're in. And beating yourself up about what you didn't do isn't helpful because you didn't do it. So just accept it, say sorry, and crack on. I can't, as a friend, base my value on whether people stay friends with me. Because that's nothing to do with me. I can base it on how I love them. Whether I cared for them. Whether I was truthful, honest, caring, merciful, gracious, kind. But that's their choice, whether they want to be my friend or not. As a pastor and teacher, I can't base whether I'm any good at it on whether people get free or not. Because that's up to them. I can't go, I've got a great church because everybody's free. Okay, well, you got lucky then because they all chose it. I can do my best to express Jesus in the best way. I can do my, best, do my best to express this word in the most easy way I can possibly think of for you to grasp it. That's what I can do. But other than that, well, it's over you because it's your choice. So I can have a goal to be the best teacher I can possibly be, and I do, and I spend a lot of time and effort and money trying to be that and developing and reading and researching and all that, but I can only have a desire that you would become more like Jesus. And I can't base whether I'm any good at this or not based on whether you become like Jesus or not, because that's up to you. Do you see the difference? But lots of us have become heartsick because we've based our value and whether we're good at something on other people. And then we got heartsick. Perhaps if we manage to realign our longings to things which are more likely to be fulfilled in the sense of we can actually influence them, we will experience a little bit less heartsickness. And maybe some of us have got to go, okay, these people in my life that I've been praying for for 20 years, it's a desire that they get into this thing but I'm not going to base who I am as a friend, a mother, a father, a wife, a husband on what they do because you cannot. I'm here to tell you this morning, listen, where your kids are at is not a reflection on your parenting. Now, some of you have got to really hear me. Where your kids are at is not necessarily a reflection on your parenting. It's a reflection on their choices. And of course, you'll look back and go, I could have done this, I could have done that, I could have done that. Of course, you're human. And of course, there will have been things that you could have done differently. Of course. But listen, Listen, your identity as a friend, as a wife, a husband, a father, a mother, whatever, is based on what you did and what he thinks about you. And what he thinks about you is exactly what he thought about John when John had all his doubts. What did he say? The greatest ever to be born of a woman. And John's going, who are you? I mean, he's questioning who the heck Jesus is. 
He's meant to be the prophet of the forerunner. He's meant to be the one who's meant to know exactly who Jesus is and announce him to the world. And he's going, are you, are you the one who are meant to come? But listen, this morning, this morning, your success in the roles that you have, in the functions that you have, as a manager at work, as somebody in the home, as, a, as whatever it is, is based on what you did to bring people into life. And, and many times we do this. I know some of you have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And you were heartsick because you've not seen the answer. But listen, you know what God does? God looks at your prayers and he sees the sacrifice of those prayers. And they are a sweet incense to him. A beautiful, sweet incense to him. And you have to know, sometimes when your kids get older, and I'm just starting to get to this place with Joshua, when your kids get older, you have to just take your hands off completely. And you have to let them choose. And I can imagine that is one of the most painful things as a parent, when they don't choose like you'd like them to choose. I can imagine it's hugely painful. But whatever they choose, whatever they've chosen, please don't allow the enemy to tell you that it's because you're a terrible parent. I don't believe it's true and I don't believe it's what Jesus says. Okay, let me just finish with three things because... Because some of you are in that place where you've, you've not put your hopes on somebody else. It's, it's about, okay, no, but God, I, I know you've said this thing to me, and I know I'm meant to be doing it, and I'm really clear about it, and I've still not seen it. And I, wanna, I just want to finish by speaking to that. Three things. The first thing you need to know is that you are naturally prone to doubt than you are prone to belief. Everybody's a skeptic. So you find it easier to doubt than you do to believe. That's the first thing. So don't beat yourself up about that. That's called being human. But the way you move from faith to doubt, so if you're in that place, first of all is this. First, you admit those doubts to yourself, to God, and to somebody else. God is not fragile. He can cope with your doubt. He can cope with your questions. But you have to air them to him and to somebody else who will meet you in compassion. You've got to wear them to him. Your doubts, your fears, your worries, your unanswered questions, he's big enough. Share them, confess them, bring them into the light, but share them with somebody who understands compassion is the first need of a sick heart, and somebody who also has the ability to help you find the strength to believe again. Often in the sharing of the doubts, God speaks. I found this earlier on this this year, I was, uh, I was writing about Little Daisies, which is, you know, eight years we've been running Little Daisies now. and Yeah, there's been a lot of disappointment in it. And continues, has continued to be, and probably in the future will continue to be, because that's how it is. But, but at this point, I was, I was particularly down. And I'd kind of kept Faye up 
and kept her going, and I'd met her with compassion, and then it kind of hit me a few days later, because I spent some time to write it down, and I was just writing like, why do I bother, what's the point, I don't know why I'm here, but now I need the money, so I have to keep going, and the, the realities of it. And then, as I wrote, the Lord gave me a picture, and I saw the whole thing in a whole new light. And, and something Derek said on Sunday resonated with me. He said, when you doubt, you either stop or you go deeper. And for once I went, oh, I'm actually ahead of the curve. Thank you, Jesus. Because I'd, I'd already gone deeper. I'd, I'd ran out. And, God, and I saw, and normally this is what had happened. In this situation, I'd have written it to Paul, and Paul had come back and gone, okay, blah, 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 this is what you do, blah, blah, blah. But I, did, I deliberately didn't tell him because he's on sabbatical and I thought, no, God's, God's got it. I don't want him to know all this. He doesn't want my doubt and disappointment on top of whatever else he's coping with. So I thought, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to God first. And if I get stuck, then I'll go to him. But I'm going to go to God first of all. And in the end, God gave me this whole strategy. And I saw like this spiritual strategy at a whole other depth and level that I've never seen for anything else before, ever. It was like he opened up a whole new realm to me as I shared these doubts with him because I was going God I don't, I don't even have a word from you to pray into it about you just said do it and we did it you never said it would be easy you never said it would be a doddle you never said you'd do that you never said that you wouldn't do you know what I mean I, I, couldn't, I didn't have anything to come back at him with it's annoying isn't it when you can't you know if you can go back but God you said this it's a bit easier when you've got nothing to come back at him with it's a bit like oh well, I can't really argue with you now, and that's just annoying sometimes because you want to have a good argument with him. Get it out with him a little bit. But as I wrote, I wrote down one word, and he reminded me of a word he gave us 12 years ago. And I was like, oh, that's it. He has spoken. He has said something. And then I went, oh, okay. Well, if I can do that, I can do that. Okay, now I know what to do. And suddenly, because I went deeper, and I shared it all with him, and I was real with him, suddenly, I got something fresh. And in that freshness, I got faith. In that freshness, I thought, ah, okay, I've never seen that before. That's exciting, isn't it? So I come home, and I was like, what are you excited about? And I'm like, and she's like, oh, flipping heck, he's excited again. Which she loves, and also. But I shared it with you because in the sharing of the doubt, God can speak. If it's not in the light, you can't speak. If you keep it in the dark, you can't speak in the way. But in the sharing of it, he speaks in the way. Secondly, sorry, I'm going on a bit hard. Secondly, make sure you act on what you know and not on the doubts of what you know. You act on what you know and you don't act on the doubts of what you know. That's what Noah did when he built the ark. It's what Abraham did when he left Ur of the Chaldees. It's what Abraham did when he offered Isaac. It's what Moses did when he marched to the Red Sea. It's what David did when he faced Goliath. It's what Joshua did when he marched around Jericho. It's what David did when he was thrown into the lion's den. It's what Nehemiah did when he built the wall. Do you think all those people didn't doubt? You think Noah didn't get in the boat going, I am looking like a complete plonker right now. <coughs> you don't think he at some point when everybody's thinking I'm a total idiot. <coughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. And hopefully it might rain. You don't think when David got thrown in the lion's den, he wasn't like, flipping heck, I hope this works. <laughs> but do you get me? You don't think when Moses got to the Red Sea, he got out with his staff and he strikes it. And this, you don't think he's, 
I don't think he's going, oh, he's probably going, oh, God, please, I'm going to look like there's a million people watching me. I've told him it's all going to be all right. That's what's really going on in these people's minds. They're not, they're not these people who were like, they were human. We read them like the superheroes. They were human, man. You think when Abraham's going up with Isaac and God said to kill him, which is not the whole point of the story, by the way, because everybody killed children. The point of the story is that Abraham didn't kill his child. That's why it's a miraculous and wonderful story. He's that God provided a way out and said, no, my child's more beautiful. But that's just separate. But, but when he's walking out with Isaac, do you think he's not going, really, I thought you were different, God. I thought, I thought, I didn't think you were like all these other pagan gods that were around me that tell me to murder my child. I thought you were different. And you don't think he's asking those questions? Of course he's asking those questions. He's a human being. But in the end, they took a deep breath. And for some of you, it's a deep, deep breath. But this is it. And decided, they made a choice to trust God. And they acted on the little they did know and not on their doubts. And that's all people do. You know these people are willing, oh, they've got great faith. What they do, they just have these moments where they go, no, I can't say that. <laughs> Let's move on. They go, oh, sack it. That's what they say. And they just carry on. No, but really, that's the reality. Sorry, that's really bad, isn't it? But you know what? That's just the reality of where you find yourself in it sometimes. Sorry if that upsets anybody. Sack it's a terrible word. Fourthly, fourthly, thirdly, why don't you doubt your doubts instead of doubting what you know? Which simply means you shouldn't cast away what you've previously held dear because you feel like in a valley of darkness. All of us walk into valleys that feel dark at the time. All of us walk into places that feel dark, feels like there's no way out, it feels like it's difficult. Some of us spend a great time there. But when you find yourself in that valley where all is uncertain and you're sorely tempted to give in to your doubts, fears and worries, remember this, keep walking. Keep walking. Nothing is gained by camping out in a valley of darkness other than living in more darkness. The only way out is to keep on walking. So, we all doubt. We all question, and doubting and questioning are not bad. In fact, they're a vital part of faith. They are the ants in your pants of faith. If we never doubted or questioned our faith, we'd never grow and we'd never learn. So it's okay. Listen to the doubts. Embrace the doubts. But here's the key. Do not set up camp there. Don't set up camp there. Keep walking until you've turned those doubts into something more solid. And what you'll find, my journey is that I now know less than I've ever known. But what I know, I know better than I've ever known it. I am less sure of, you know, in my 20s, I knew everything, man. I, I knew how everything was going to work out. I had it all sorted, all nailed down. I had it all sorted. And over this last 20 years, God's been very good at pointing out how ridiculously stupid that is. Uh, often very bluntly. But what I've worked out is that through all that, you just come to know some things without a shadow of a doubt, literally. 
And that's all you need. You don't need to know lots of things. You just need to know a few things well. And if you know a few things well, that gets you through everything. That's the reality. Okay. I think we need to do something. I'm not quite sure what, so let's just take a moment. Let's just take a moment. I suppose really there's two groups of people in others. There's those of us who are heartsick because of others where, where we see others are, if that makes sense. So we, we have been disappointed many, many times and feel a heart sickness because of, and we've wanted other people to come to a different place, and maybe that's affected how we see ourselves. So there's a heart sickness for them, which is, in one sense, beautiful. There's compassion for them, there's desire for them, and that's not a bad thing. But when it, when it starts to affect who you see yourself as, that's not right and good. You know, it's beautiful. You've developed compassion for somebody else, but when it affects who you think you are, it's kind of gone past a point that's healthy. So let's, let's first of all, just, if that's you, when you've kind of allowed the actions of other people to define whether you've done a good job or not, I want to pray for you. And I'm just, let's just keep our eyes closed. Let's keep our heads bowed. This is about you. It's not about anybody else. If this is not you, then just... You pray generally for them, but I just, and I'm just going to keep my eyes closed, I sense this time. Father, I want to lift up to you those of us who have allowed the actions of others to impact our own value and worth. We've allowed what others have done and let them define who we are and how well we've done something. And Father, we, we, those of us who have done that, Father, we want to say, sorry, Lord, we recognize that's not what you say about us. And we ask your forgiveness, Father, for allowing ourselves to be defined by others' reactions and responses, Jesus. And Father, more than that, we ask for your healing, Jesus. That sickness in our hearts, Father, that pain in our hearts, Lord, that thought that we were not a good friend, not a good mum, not a good dad, not a good wife or husband, not a good son or daughter, whatever it may be. Father, I just speak into that pain, Father. And your words to John, Lord, are so beautiful, Father. We just speak your healing and your life in the name of Jesus. And we declare, Lord, your love. We declare that they have done well, Father. We remind them of every good and wonderful way in which they were that carer for that person forever. And we ask, Lord, that we would not carry on allowing the actions of others to define us, Lord, but we'd look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that you, we, would, we would allow you to define us and allow you to define who we are, Father, and allow you to define the fact that we are successful in that which we do, Lord. And then, Father, I want to lift those of you, those of us, Father, who were, who were battling through, Father, who, who have understood that perhaps and have not put our hopes or desires in anybody else, Father, but we've heard something from you and we are pushing through for it, but, but are finding it so tough. Father, I ask that each of us would be able to share the truth of it with you, Jesus. 
and share it with somebody else, Father. And Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, as you said to Peter, Lord, that you would pray, that you would strengthen our faith, Father. And Lord, I'm asking, I'm asking that we might be a people who would be bold enough and brave enough to believe again, Father. Lord, strengthen us, Father. I ask now for a feeling in each and every person, Lord. A strengthening, Father, of who we are. All that we've sung, Father, you are good, you are good, you are good. But, Father, so often when we don't see it, we start to doubt it and start to not believe it. But, Lord, you are good. You are good, Lord. We thank you that you are healer and you are life. In Jesus' name, amen.